Tennis with an Accent. It will be doing live shows every day during Wimbledon. We'll have daily written coverage of the championships at SW19 to support the work that we do here at Tennis with an Accent. Saqib Ali, myself, consultant and contributor Andrew Burton, and also our contributing writers, Sharada Iyer and Jane Voigt, and perhaps others who might join us for coverage of the championships. If you want to support our work, we have a donation at Kofi button. You can find that on our respective Twitter pages, my Twitter page, M Zemek, Sakib's Twitter page, S-A-Q-I-B-A, and our site Twitter page, accent underscore tennis. So please support Tennis with an Accent to the extent that you can, to the extent that you can afford. Uh, look for our donation pages at Kofi button. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We've been doing a lot of live shows recently at Roland Garros, uh, but now we return to our weekly long-form podcast. I'm Matt Zemek. He's Saqib Ali. A lot to talk about as we review Roland Garros and also look at tennis history. Plenty to talk about. Saqib, how are you? I'm well. I feel like you know we've been doing a lot of this uh, discussion because for the first time, in our collaboration at Tennis with an Accent, we did uh, Twitter Live Spaces, which was like daily shows starting 30 minutes with uh, both draw previews and then the full 15-day coverage of the tournament and a one-hour men's final. So it looks like we've we've been in touch and you know we've exchanged views, we've learned views, and uh, here we are to do a podcast, which is more like a timeless repository of our views and our listeners who missed the uh, final and semifinal shows. This is... Uh, this is this is a moment where you know me and Matt can exchange some you know some notes some views and this will be there for your uh, listening pleasure whenever you can tune in. So Matt, what a fortnight! Huh? And every time you know we talk about the big three and especially Nadal and Djokovic, you know at the business end, you know there's a lot of history that unfolds and gets rewritten. There is, and it was interesting to get the input from various listeners and also from tennis experts. Uh, about the Djokovic-Nadal match. And, you know, I said before the first ball on Friday that it was the biggest major semifinal of all time. Uh, It was probably the most important match not played on a Saturday or Sunday of all time, given that Wimbledon men's finals used to be on Saturday before they were on Sunday. And then now, you know, every, every big women's or men's championship match is on a Saturday or a Sunday and I got some pushback and I'm not that I'm, that's not a criticism about the pushback. It's just that it was noticeable that I got pushback. Uh, a, few, a few folks said that uh, the 2013 semifinal was actually bigger than this uh, 2021 Roland Garros semifinal. And that one, I, I just find hard to, to square with uh, 2021 because in 2013, I mean, their legends were not at the level that they were here. There, the historical stakes were certainly considerable in 2013, but they were a lot greater now. And now I understand the thought process that Djokovic and Nadal playing this 2021 Roland Garros semifinal at 34 and 35. Maybe you, maybe the thought process is that you don't judge older tennis players, uh, you know, tennis players who are getting on in years the same way you do when two players are in their physical primes. Now, when I say physical primes, that's not the same as a tennis prime, because in 2013, um, neither Djokovic 
Nor Nadal was in a was in a tennis prime, or at least Nadal's was not yet in a tennis prime. Um, didn't uh, didn't make a big imprint uh, at the Australian Open. You know, he was coming back from injury. Um, so in many ways, 2013 Roland Garros represented the beginning of a tennis prime for Nadal, who later that year won uh, Canada and Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. But his, he was not really in his prime when he headed to Paris in 2013. Um, so, you know, this, this was an occasion when, you know, Nadal was looking for a 14th Roland Garros title. And uh, Djokovic was looking for the double slam or the Novak double, you could also call it. So I would still put this match way above 2013 Roland Garros as the most important major semifinal ever. I think the one major semifinal, which really does belong in the conversation uh, as the most important one ever alongside this one that we just watched in Paris was the 2018 Wimbledon semifinal. Uh, between Djokovic and Nadal. That one's going to carry a lot of resonance and one can very legitimately say, and in fact, I don't know how you even debate it, that was the beginning of Djokovic's latest career resurgence. You know, Djokovic's greatness can really be divided into three segments. The first segment began with his 2011 season uh, and, and that be, and, went, and you know, fueled by what he did at the end of 2010, both at the U.S. Open and in Davis Cup. That was the first part of Nole's greatness. The second part began with the 2014 Wimbledon final when he outfoxed Federer in five sets. And that led to his majestic 2015, which as great as his 2011 season one was, 2015 was even better with all the top 10 wins that he had, everyone gunning for him. And he still kept knocking everybody down, uh, went 27 and one at the majors, only Stan at Roland Garros stood in the way of a true grand slam, the way Rod Laver did it in 1962 and 1969. And of course, Djokovic now has half of the grand slam completed for 2021. He is uh, gonna try to hunt that down. And if he does, you know, it's obvious how much that would vault him even more uh, in the larger scope of history. Uh, so um, Djokovic, the, the third stage of Djokovic's greatness really did begin after his, his injuries in 2017. It began with Wimbledon in 2018, uh, and, that and the semifinal against Nadal made it all possible because uh, then he had Kevin Anderson in the final after Anderson played like a six-hour semifinal against Isner. So that was really – that semifinal was essentially the final, a lot like this year at Roland Garros. Um, so like those two matches, 2018 Wimbledon – and 2021 Roland Garros, I think the two most consequential men's major semifinals of all time. And who won? Djokovic, both times. And how did he win both times? With a third set tiebreaker that Nadal easily could have won. Uh, you know, in this Roland Garros tiebreaker, Nadal missed that really, really easy volley uh, midway through the tiebreaker. It was akin to his mistake against Tsitsipas in a third set tiebreaker in the Australian Open quarterfinals, one mistake by Nadal and Djokovic punished it and he was able to knock the door down at Roland Garros. Yes, he had beaten Nadal at Roland Garros before, but 2015, we knew Rafa wasn't in form, wasn't in physical shape. It, it, was, it was important for Djokovic to win that match and he did, but this, this match, this victory over Rafa in Paris really stands alone in a separate category for a lot of reasons. The two, the two biggest ones being that 
Djokovic went on to win the title, which he didn't in 2015. The other reason is that Rafa was 26-0 in Roland Garros semifinals and finals heading into this match. So Djokovic becomes the first man to beat Rafa in a semi or final uh, at Roland Garros. So just so much history and everything that I've mentioned, that's really just scratching the surface. I mean, we could, we could rattle off dozens of other milestone aspects of this win for Djokovic, but those are the foremost highlights. It's definitely debatable that uh, 2013 wasn't, it may not be Rafa Nadal's peak overall, but I think in Clayco tennis, it was, he was a six-time champion at Roland Garros and the, you know, the dominant force, the standard everyone was measured by and Novak Djokovic with his, you know, resurgence, like you said, the beginning of resurgence in the dominance in 2011, not resurgence, uh, had already tasted you know, success against uh, Nadal on play. So I would also include that match because uh, it was probably overall two years away from Djokovic's peak, which is 2015. But I think that match deserves to be in the conversation when we talk about, you know, the Rafael uh, non-final matches. And, uh, and this match, again, you know, both men might be removed from their peak, but they still know how to win Grand Slam. They still know how to win matches. The stakes were higher. And you rightfully said this was the 58th edition when they played those matches, even the 2012 Australian Open final, their careers were still good, but they, it was nowhere close to what it is right now with 20 and now Novak's 19th slam. So every time these two guys get together, along with Federer, if Federer plays them in a big match, semi or final, a lot of history will be at stake. And this match, considering the stakes that were you know there for this match and you know the middle of the set two and full set three was just amazing. It's just like a six... Uh, episode season, you know, episode four and five were just like all-time best. So I think that 97-minute third set, which ended in a tie-break, is something we can talk about. And, uh, you know, I know you mentioned Novak Djokovic's serve as a serious weapon. It was a weapon since the Becker days, but it's just gotten so much reliable. Even the weapon category, it's just it just got elevated, what he's able to do with the serve. And I was noticing... Uh, throughout these championships. And even in Australia, you know, the serve was such a weapon when he was struggling physically. You know, the spots are there. It just is very timely, like a Sampras Becker serve or the Federer serve, you know, when it comes, when it bails him out. And that's just the greatness because, you know, all the statistics are available. But uh, what stays in your mind is, you know, when the chips are down, Djokovic's serve is almost as reliable as all-court game now. So let me throw this back to you, Matt. We've talked about the importance of that set. You wrote about it, and we should encourage listeners to go and check out that article you put out there on tennisaction.com last night. So where would this set rank in the in the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry and, you know, some of the best sets you've seen in tennis? I know you're asking a huge sample size, but whatever comes to mind, you know, when we talk about this set, and a lot of people say we'll be talking about this set good 10, 15 years from now. I think, you know, and we, we had a live show with Andrew Burton on Sunday after the Roland Garros men's final. And he mentioned the uh, 2011 U.S. Open final. And I think the third set of uh, Nadal Djokovic at that final, that could be the greatest set they've played, even even better than than this one. Uh, I mean, this, this, this set at Roland Garros, the third set was an incredible set. And we we're all going to remember it. And we should. Uh, in terms of pure quality of play, I think the third set of that U.S. Open might be greater. And what what helps the argument for the 2011 U.S. Open final third set is that, you know, Djokovic was physically uh, absolutely maxed out for the rest of the 2011 calendar. 
You know, he was not able to do anything of consequence in the remainder of 2011 after he finished off that U.S. Open title. So that that's a testament to how much of a toll that match took uh, on Djokovic. So that that lends weight to the idea that that's the best set they've ever played. I think the fifth set of that 2018 Wimbledon semifinal was also really good quality. Um, probably belongs in the conversation, but I think the U.S. Open and this set both belong a little bit higher. And as we contemplate the greatness of Novak Djokovic, I mean, you know, obvious, this is not to diminish Rafael Nadal. And th this is a, a good reminder for whenever we discuss, you know, who's the greatest, who's the best. When you say that one player really was magnificent here, that is not an implied statement that this other guy wasn't. It's just that the, the, one, the person who won somehow found something extra, found something superb, found something special. That's all it is. It's, it's, a, it's a magnification of the winner. It is not a diminishment of the loser. I talk all the time about some matches are won, other matches are lost. I think the Zverev Tsitsipas semifinal, for instance, that was a match more lost by the loser than it was won by the winner. But of course, with Djokovic and Nadal, it's always won. It's, it's always about what the winner does uh, in a very tight spot. And so Djokovic's greatness, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what to say. Like we've, we've said it so many times, but we have to say it again, is that he, he's in difficult spots. He looks uncomfortable. Something goes against him and he rescues himself. I mean, that's what he just keeps doing again and again and again. And, you know, after that 2019 Wimbledon final, the win over Federer, saving championship points. I remarked about how if, if we're going to have a GOAT debate and we're going to decide who's the winner, maybe Djokovic is the best. But if he is the best, he's the best by two points because the two points that he saved against Federer, the one set point that he saved in that third set against Nadal. You know, if we look at just 10 points, 10 points from an entire career, you know, that this is hundreds of thousands of points. If we just pick 10 from Djokovic's career that might have gone the, if they go the other way, how different is the GOAT debate that we're having right now? The two match points he saved against Federer in 2010 at the U.S. Open. The two match points he saved in 2011 against Federer at the U.S. Open. The two championship points he saved against Federer in 2019. The 4-2, 30-15 point against Nadal in the fifth set of that 2012 Australian Open men's final. The two break points he saved against Nadal late in that fifth set in that 2018 Wimbledon uh, uh, semifinal. And then this set point against Rafa. That's 10 points right there. 10 points, six against Federer, and then uh, uh, four points against Nadal. If those 10 points go the other way, how, what are we looking at in terms of the major title count. Djokovic would have several fewer. Nadal and Federer uh, would have several more, especially Nadal, because uh, like in that 2011 U.S. Open uh, semifinal, you know, Nadal probably beats Federer in the final, but, you know, he did deny Federer championship points at Wimbledon. So Federer would have 21. Nadal might have 23. Djokovic might be at like uh, 15 or 16. So 10 points, one could say, have rewritten the whole course of history in tennis. So it's not as though Djokovic is eclipsing Nadal or Federer by humongous margins. No, he's eclipsing them by the tiniest of margins. And that I think is a really good way to frame the GOAT debate. No matter which person you land on, 
which person you favor, the margins have been microscopic. And that's the, the point that we need to keep in mind. Like if any fan says, oh, it's Djokovic and it's not even close. Or if the fan says, oh, it's clearly Rafa, you know, there's no doubt about that. And if someone says, well, it's got to be Federer, you know, he, he rewrote everything. He transformed tennis and, and everything that uh, happened after his emergence in 2004. It's him. And it doesn't matter what Nadal or Djokovic did afterward. You know, if anyone says like, it's clear, it's obvious. That's the kind of argument that we need to pull away from. But if you want to just want to make points about specific factual achievements and acknowledge that whichever person it is, the margins are small. As long as people are willing to acknowledge that, that is a responsible way to go about the GOAT debate. I think, I think what really angers people when GOAT debates emerge is that they think, oh, it's settled. You know, it's clear. You know, it's obvious. And that, that's the kind of thing we need to steer away from. Having said all that, if, if Djokovic wins Wimbledon in the U.S. Open to get the Grand Slam, that will obviously move the needle in his favor. We can say that. It's not terrifically controversial. But uh, I just don't like the knee-jerk comment that, oh, it's clearly you know, this guy or that guy without you know, acknowledging that it's, that it's a legitimate conversation and point of debate. But, but Djokovic keeps winning these 50-50 moments in big matches uh, 10 points that changed the course of tennis history. It's, it's a lot to think about. No, again, uh, you, you hit, hit on something very important, you know, like even the space, when you said that, I said, well, this is how we can break this conversation down with two of his biggest rivals. But uh, something has happened, I think, since 2011, you know, when Djokovic started dominating, he went on that, you know, amazing run uh, and then, you know, won three slams that year. Uh, again, I, I'm a big proponent. Yeah, you should measure his sex against Rafa and Federer but you should also see how he's been doing this consistently. Uh, you know, the match against Seppi, then the match against Songa in the 2012 French Open. Again, classic examples. I don't know if they were match points, but he was facing a lot of break points and a lot of crucial points in the fifth set. And, you know, the crowd against him again, in the Songa match. And, you know, he's playing these unbelievable forehands and backhands, you know, like 15 feet away from the baseline. And that's when I realized, you know, like this guy is doing this day in, day out. And then all the big matches against Andy Murray. And, uh, you know, twice this fortnight against uh, uh, Lorenzo Musetti and against Stefano Tsitsipas, we've seen how he just goes into, into this refuse to lose mode. I remember in 2006 Davis Cup final, uh, Russian Davis Cup captain Shamil Terpeshev chose Marat Safin to go against Jose Akasuso when the choice should have been Nikolai Davidenko. But uh, the Russian Davis Cup captain explained the decision saying, I know Marat might play bad. He may play good, but one thing for sure, he will not lose. And I say, okay, I'm a big Safin fan, but that's like a huge word of confidence. And Safin won that match in four sets. But I think that statement belongs to Djokovic. Like in the last 10, 11 years, this guy just, you know, what is whatever it is, reset button, you know, his, his focusing skills. Of course, the tennis is always there. And look at the three of the four slams he's won in the last year and a half. Dominic team, 2020 US Open. Before that, Roger Federer had match points. You mentioned Wimbledon. And now Stefano Tsitsipas. And all three opponents would have been deserving winners had they won. But what we have is the refuse to lose mode of Djokovic. I don't know how to say it. You may say it better. But these three matches just exemplify. He goes to a place where he just, you know, cleans his game and just focuses harder than his opponent and says, you know what? Let's see if you can get this done. And again, you know, 
those two match points and team played an unbelievable third set looked like he might win and Tsitsipas two sets to love up of course new territory for the young greek we'll talk about him but this has been like a body of work so i just wanted to add you know yeah the goat debate and the conversation between the three uh, greatest players may be divided between 8 or 10 points but my point is to get to those matches he has done it against kevin anderson at wimbledon the seppi songa matches at 2012 uh Roland Garros you 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 need to win those matches before you play Federer and Nadal so i think it's been just going on on our on our watch for the last 10 years and he is definitely the mentally the toughest player that i've seen you know in the last uh, 36 years of tennis watching as a fan of course i know a lot about the game now in my 40s i don't remember half the matches you know what i saw as a young boy but before this sampras was the biggest big match player according to me Uh, Rafa Nadal has his you know moments where you know like Murray says he competes for every single point and that's a great attribute but Djokovic in five sets so Djokovic in like you know crucial situations is just like you know he's in a league of his own he is and uh I think it's worth noting that you know Nadal and Federer they've both had their moments when they've won extended dog fights uh in in major tournament finals uh Federer's foremost example would be the 2017 Austrian Open final against Nadal coming back from a breakdown in the 5th uh, for Nadal um obviously the five set final against Federer at 2008 Wimbledon but also the 2019 US Open final when uh he was on the verge of losing to Daniil Medvedev but pulled things back in the 5th uh and pushed his physical limits as he often does Uh, but that having been said, while Federer and Nadal have certainly had their moments in terms of five-set wins in major finals, we see Djokovic pulling out these kinds of matches a little bit more than Federer and Nadal do. Um, you know, Djokovic winning uh, five sets against Federer to, at Wimbledon in 2019, beat Federer in five sets in 2014. Now this against uh, Tsitsipas, and of course Djokovic came back from. uh two sets down against Musetti you know so that that this tournament he had two comebacks from two sets down so that's another notch under his belt and then we also need to step back on an even larger level in 2021 Sakim and realize that he was extended to five sets by Taylor Fritz he you know he was dealing with the physical difficulties at the Australian Open so five sets to Fritz managed to pull through that that fifth set in obvious physical discomfort pulled through against Raonic in obvious physical discomfort He was down a break in sets 3 and 4 to Zverev in the Australian Open quarters. So, you know, three game those were and those were three game deficits since Zverev served first in each of those sets. So, you know, so he, there were so many points during that Australian Open where you think, well, sur- surely this is the end of the line for Djokovic's body. You know, he's going to have to eat a loss at a major because of his physical condition akin to what happened uh in uh 2016 and 2017 but no at the, at age 33 and then he turned 34 in May he's actually found a way to be even stronger in the face of physical difficulty i mean that's how he pulled back and managed to win the Australian Open really playing uphill in that in the third round fourth round and quarters before his body straightened out in the semis and then in the final and now we see two comebacks from two sets down so you could say in in very specific ways that his his capacity to endure has grown 
as he has gotten older. And so that leads me to another fundamental point that, you know, Nadal has really set the gold standard for what he likes to call suffering on the court. And it's something, you know, obviously that Tony Nadal has cultivated with him. You know, you have to be willing to suffer. It's really a different way of what Tony Roach told Federer way back in the day that, you know, are you going to, are you, is your body ready to play seven, five set matches? You know, that's the Australian old school ethos being fit to play, being ready for anything, any physical test, any challenge that might come your way. So Nadal has really set the gold standard over all this time. And so it, 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 it not only does it seem unfair, it would be unfair to say that Djokovic has eclipsed Rafa because no, no one just per- perseveres against all obstacles the way Rafael Nadal has. I mean, he, is, he is a paragon for mental toughness in sports. So I think it's unfair to say that Djokovic has eclipsed him. Like you can't say that someone's tougher than Rafael Nadal. Like that's like saying something's brighter than the sun. You can't say that. But it also needs to be said that if while you can't say Djokovic is tougher than Nadal, he's not less tough, not one ounce, not one bit. And I think that this, this Roland Garros, also this Australian Open, should lead us to the conclusion that Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic are both paragons on an equal plane in terms of suffering on the court, living with suffering, accepting suffering, and finding a path to victory through the suffering. I mean, that's a really important thing to say after this Roland Garros tournament. Sure. Again, uh, that brings me to a question that a listener asked you, but a lot of our listeners who listen to the podcast may not have listened to the Daily Spaces. And uh, it's the same question that was asked. So what does this mean for Rafa Nadal, losing you know, his kingdom, losing his beloved French Open? Uh, is it the beginning of end of a clay court era, clay court dynasty? Or I, I think not. You think not. But what is the explained answer here for Nadal fans who are looking for you know, what lays next for their man with Wimbledon coming up and then the U.S. Open and Olympics? Well, I think the first thing to say is the, the man has won 13 Roland Garros titles. So, okay, he didn't win 14. Now, so that can feel, I, under, I understand this, it can feel like the world's coming to an end when something which has been so reliable and so predictable in sports some, suddenly doesn't happen. But just because something is reliable, that doesn't mean it's guaranteed. You know, we, we, we play these games because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We think we know. Like, and I was certainly betting on Rafael Nadal to win another Roland Garros title. You were betting on Rafael Nadal to win another Roland Garros title, but that doesn't mean it's automatic. And that's really a a good encapsulation of the big three. They make things seem automatic, but the, the, the things that they achieve are not automatic. You know, they have to walk over the hot coals of pressure, of physical challenges, strain, the, the publicity, the pressure. They have to withstand all those challenges. And, you know, we, we, we saw how Djokovic, you know, looked really worn out. And I don't think it was more of about coming back from the Nadal semifinal. It was more about the hot sun. The hot sun is just as tough a rival of Djokovic as Nadal. And so he was really suffering after those first two sets. But he carried himself through from sets three through five, and it really mattered. You know, and Sitsipas was new to that situation, much as Zverev was new to being up two sets in a major final. That you know they had not been there before, and Djokovic's experience really shined through uh, in, in in the latter stages of that match. So 
when we bring this back to Nadal, what it, it, you know, he made Roland Garros winning Roland Garros seem automatic, but it wasn't. And Djokovic certainly had some looks at him in other semifinals and finals. You know, the 2013 semifinal was extremely close. Uh, 2014, it felt like a match that was up in the air for a period of time, but Djokovic didn't take his chances, um, much as Federer didn't take his chances in the 2007 Roland Garros final, which seemed like a winnable match for him in the, in the early stages. Um, so, you know, Nadal was able to, to keep fending off Djokovic, but that didn't mean Djokovic wasn't capable of greatness. And, you know, finally, finally, you know, in 2015, Nadal was nowhere near the height of his power. So that, that match belongs in its own separate category. Djokovic took advantage of an opportunity, but Rafa wasn't Rafa. But this time, Djokovic did beat Rafa when he was Rafa. Not at his very best, but still the favorite to win Roland Garros. And Rafa beats anyone else in that match on Friday night, but he didn't beat Djokovic. Um, so... We just have to tip the cap to Djokovic. Djokovic is a 19-time major champion who played well, and that's why Nadal lost. So there's no need for a sky-is-falling attitude. What we need to realize is that if Nadal can get his ranking back to number two, and that won't be easy with all the points Medvedev has, but if Nadal can get his ranking to number two, guess what? He doesn't have to worry about being scheduled for a nighttime semifinal on Friday, when Djokovic can sleep with his girlfriend, translated, and he can play in the shade, and that certainly did help Noel. I mean, if it, so Nadal needs to get to that number two ranking, which would guarantee that he's that if he does play Djokovic in future Roland Garros tournaments, it's going to be Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m. in Paris, hot sun. You know, Nadal takes the nighttime semifinal out of play if he gets the number two ranking and then he can play Djokovic in the sun and that's where the sun god can help Nadal wear down Djokovic in an in, a, in an afternoon battle that is the obvious ingredient now having said that well, we need to deal with that that notion of the conditions a little bit all right the shade in the Friday semifinal certainly helped Djokovic I mean Djokovic always plays better in shade or nighttime cover uh, than he does in uh, a blasting sun. Everyone knows that, okay? So that certainly helped Djokovic that, that he got to play a nighttime semifinal. But, like, this was not unfair to Rafa. Like, th this is different from Djokovic being forced to play a late semifinal in Rome on Saturday night and then have to come back on Sunday, you know, with, with minimal rest. Uh, you know, that was a scheduling uh, structural element that was unfair to Djokovic, but there's nothing unfair to Rafa about this. You know that if Rafael are going to play in a major semifinal, it's going to be on second unless there's a home nation player involved in the other semifinal. And that's the thing about 2013 when Rafael played first, it was because Joe Wilfred Sanga was in the other semifinal. So Roland Garros for French television obviously wanted Sanga to be on in primetime as the second match, the evening match. So in most cases, though, Rafael will play second in a, in a semifinal order of play. So there's really nothing that's unfair about it. Now, Nadal fans will come back. This is the better argument that Nadal fans have. They could say Roland Garros should have seeded based on clay. Now, Wimbledon has been seeding on grass in recent years 
but it's no longer going to seed on grass. But nevertheless, one could say that, you know, Roland Garros ought to adopt a clay specific seeding formula that would that would have bumped Nadal ahead of Club Med for this year's tournament. So that's a good point that Nadal fans have. But there was nothing inherently unfair about Nadal having to play a night semifinal or a late evening semifinal as it was, you know, pushed late because Zverev and Tsitsipas went five sets. There's nothing unfair about that. that that's, that's just uh, the variable that comes with being third, ranked third, and you can get drawn in Djokovic's half and you can play him in the second semifinal. So if N Nadal uh, played Djokovic in a situation in which Djokovic had a benefit, but the fact that Djokovic had a benefit, that doesn't mean Nadal was somehow wronged or screwed or jobbed. It just means that there were more variables in play and Djokovic was better. And that's just fair play. That's how the draw ended up. Like you said, when you were number three, you have the 50% chance of you know playing number one. So let's move to the final with Stefano Tsitsipas. Uh, you know, we both were talking since his win in Monte Carlo that he has gone past Dominic team. And, you know, that's all new. Everybody kind of believes that. But one thing was to come in as a third favorite and then got the advantage of being on the other side of, you know, Nadal because Nadal and Djokovic were on the other side. Uh, and then to back that game and ride all the way to the final playing a five-set final against uh, Sasha Zverev and uh, also beating his nemesis, Daniel Medvedev, in the quarters. So Tsitsipas, you know, like you said, had a better Australian Open because he got the best of Rafael Nadal there in five sets. And now he came close, you know, uh, to win his first ever slam fin final against Novak Djokovic and was, you know, beaten in five sets. So huge fortnight for Stefano Tsitsipas. Uh, won't you agree? You know, like uh, the strides he's made this clay court season, many believe clay is his best surface. And uh, he delivered that uh, the third favorite, you know, status in flying colors, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, the, the expectation was for him to make the final and he did. And, you know, if he, if he is the great player, many people think he's going to become, uh, he'll, he will learn from this final against Djokovic. He's going to grow from the experience and this is going to serve him well down the line. And, you know, Zverev losing a two set lead to team in the U S open Tsitsipas losing a two set lead in a final against Djokovic. I mean, both players have a chance to grow uh, from that experience. And uh, we can say, I think that Tsitsipas is further along in his growth curve. You know, this is true, even though Zverev has uh, added some master's titles uh, to his collection, but you know, in that, in that semifinal on Friday, I mean, most of my Twitter feed, uh, when, when Tsitsipas really got very tight in the third and fourth sets, most of my Twitter feed was still thinking Tsitsipas was going to win based on the belief that as soon as Zverev got into a position where he was no longer trailing on the scoreboard, that if he got into a fifth set and it got tied at two sets apiece, Zverev was going to tighten up again. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so uh, Tsitsipas really, you know, it, that that again that semifinal as I've said before was more a match that was lost by the loser whereas the Rafael semifinal was won by the winner but you know Sitsipas got through that match he survived it and so now he has that that major final test of the big time against Djokovic you know he said after the match being up two sets means nothing and he's correct you know it's finishing the job which Djokovic is such a master at doing 
And so Sitsipas, you know, it, it, the loss stung. He he certainly will regret the way he played those final three sets, especially sets three and four, and, and very especially that 2-1 game early in the third set when he began to leak some routine errors. You know, he'll be frustrated with it, but, you know, if the great the great ones learn from these moments, and we, we see that we see how Djokovic has learned from every difficult defeat in his career. I mean, he used to be the Yvonne Lendl of tennis, you know, in that 2012, 13, early 2014 period, he was getting to major finals and he wasn't usually winning them. He won a few, but he wasn't winning most of them. And yet from that, from that Lendl like journey of making major finals, but losing them more often than not, he, he learned from that and became the giant in these difficult, tense, close situations. So that is the opportunity. That is the table that has been set for Stefano Tsitsipas. If he's willing to learn, and I, and, I, and I see no indication that he isn't, if he's willing to learn, it certainly seems that he is, you know, the greatness is, is coming for him. It's just a matter of when, not if. Yeah, I think I, I agree. And we talked about, I think, on the spaces too, uh, if you want to just uh, give your view on Medvedev, Sitsipas, and Zverev, you know, where do they rank in the pecking order considering all four surfaces? Because these, these three seem to be, you know, the big challenges, you know, for, for Djokovic. And of course, Nadal's not going anywhere. And let's see what happens with Federer's comeback. But they th- these three are like playing uh, majors consistently. Uh, you know, they have been regular features of the World Tour finals. They have you know, uh, in Zverev's case has won, and in Medvedev's case, they have all both won Masters 1000, and Tsitsipas won his maiden one in Monte Carlo. So how does the future of the Grand Slams look? You know, like, are these three, you know, can we consider them like top five, top six, you know, permanently, till team figures something out, what's going on with him? Well, Wimbledon's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, you have just the two-week break instead of the three-week break. So I'm going to be very interested to see what Tsitsipas has uh with uh, just two weeks off that's a quick recovery i'm not sure whether the physical challenge or the mental challenge is going to be tougher for him i probably lean toward the mental since since grass is not as physically demanding as clay is not to say that it, it doesn't require anything physically just that clay requires more on a purely physical level um so the the mental challenge for Sitsipas. Uh, coming from Paris with the short turnaround to Wimbledon, you know, if he does reasonably well, I'd say, you know, even quarters might be fine, but, but if he, if he especially is able to go to the semis, uh, that's a really good sign in terms of being able to turn the page mentally, get, move on to the next, next uh, tournament, next big moment and uh, continue to produce results. Uh, Medvedev, you know, he, on grass, that's kind of more of a wild card, but I mean, he certainly has the serve and uh, I mean, certainly has the creative uh, improvisational ability to do special things on grass. So I'm certainly going to give him a shot at Wimbledon. Um, it, it, it's really going to be fascinating in terms of whether Sitsipas uh, or Medvedev uh, rises more at Wimbledon and, and then carries form into the U S open and Zverev, you know, I know that you like Zverev, I'm not very high on him, and and I think he let a winnable match get away from him because Sitsipas just was not in top form. I mean, that was not a good version of Sitsipas 
that we saw on Friday. And so to me, Sakib, I think Zverev keeps letting these opportunities go, not just team in the U.S. Open final, but the, the Sitsipas match. And also, you know, an injured, physically limited Djokovic uh, in the uh, Australian Open quarterfinals. That was an opportunity for Zverev. And so it, what's, what's good is that he has clearly accumulated a lot of experience in these late stage moments of majors. I mean, that, that's good. And, you know, a few years ago, remember, he was struggling to make major semis. So, like, that's been taken care of. That has been solved. He's, he's, he's been able to get to that point. But now we have to wonder, how many more really, really difficult losses does Alexander Zverev need to absorb uh, before taking the next step? Because if he keeps picking up these really tough losses, and, and Friday against Tsitsipas certainly rates as one of them, because that match was right there for him to win. You know, if you if you pick up enough losses, it stops being a matter of, oh, look, he's gaining all this meaningful experience. It stops being about that. And it starts being, oh, we have a chronic inability to close things out. So that's kind of the knife's edge on which Alexander Zverev is sitting. He's building meaningful experiences. But at some point, the meaningful experiences have to start translating to moments when he crosses the threshold and finally gets the job done at a major. No, I mean, you, you, you covered everything that, that's wrong with his tennis. And I, I think uh, I'll steal your words, like multiple things can be right. And I think you will agree. Uh, of course, he's made tremendous ground uh, to be in a short list of players that can contend for titles. And like I mentioned in the space, Andy Roddick was very bullish on him, even more than Tsitsipas on a tennis channel preview, where he thinks where is slightly more suited for all four slams compared to Daniil and uh, Stefanos, which I disagree because I think Sitsipas is also suited and probably has more upper, you know, more ability to shine on these slams. But I think Zverev, I'll also add, is the Lendl comparison is more apt to Zverev because Lendl was known to choke in the early days, whatever we've read. Djokovic, when he was losing those finals, wasn't choking. He wasn't just converting those big wins. That's, I think that's a big difference. But yeah, Lendl and Djokovic are champions, so the comparison becomes a little more sensible. But I think Sasha Zverev absolutely, you know, tightens up. And, you know, the Love 40 game is a classic example in the fifth set against Tsitsipas, where he made like four or five horrendous errors. And we can also go back to the 3-0 game in the uh, second set, when he just, you know, kept hitting the net tape, uh, tape of the net and the ball was going out. And that's a sign of tightness because his errors not only are similar, they come in abundance. But let's see. I think he deserves to be shortlisted. But uh, both Daniel Medvedev and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas have shown the capability of mixing it up with not with the, the big three. They also have a very good record against the top 10. And I think Zverev hasn't won a top 10 match at a major. So, yeah, a few questions still to be answered. So, let's uh, switch to the women's side. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people get offended with the word chaos, but I think you mean it in a good way, the WT chaos. And, you know, this fortnight was served with some, some brilliant surprises. You know, there were like three or four high-quality matches, which we talked about in the spaces. Sakri had a role there. And then uh, Krachikova, and, you know, it seemed like she, she had the nerve to win back big matches. And uh, so what do, you, what do you make of her run? And she also, you know won the, the double. I mean, you know, single and double-double. That's, like, amazing. That, you know, that's an old era. Navratilova-Sukova days, we used to get winners, you know, on the same 
fortnight and, and the men, I think Kefalnikov did it. Not many men even play doubles at majors. Uh, I mean, the top men. So break her fortnight down for us. And again, anyone who didn't tune into the spaces, how much of an outsider was she for this kind of a result? Well, she was very much an outsider. And I think it, it goes to the point that, you know, we, we said that we should expect chaos. But the thing is, is that you might expect chaos, but you don't know where the chaos is going to come from. And that's the true surprise. So like, you know, it was this women's French Open was predictably unpredictable. But what was unpredictable was which people were going to take advantage of this very fluid situation in women's tennis. And so with Krachikova, we have to just realize that, you know, this was not a steamroller. You know, the Iga Sviantek in 2020, that was a steamroller. You know, she lost uh, no more than four games in any of the sets that she played. She lost 28 games uh, in, in her run through seven matches. So in other words, that was an average of losing just four games per match on the road to the title. And, you know, we had to realize that that was aberrational. That was not a standard major tournament run. You know, she rode the wave. Of course, they were heavy conditions in the colder autumn weather in October. So, you know, in the, in early June, it was going to be a very different reality for her. And, you know, I was on record in our Twitter spaces live show before the Roland Garros women's tournament began that Sriantec would not repeat. And it was just, it was a lot to ask of her to not only to defend her title, but to do so in different conditions and just eight months, not 12, you know, after the, her, her initial championship. And so once uh, Sakari beat Sriantec in the quarters, it not only was it anyone's Roland Garros to win, but there was no real hierarchy of favorites because all the other players who were in the latter stages uh, hadn't been there before. You know, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, Pavs, uh, she had been to six previous uh, major quarters, but hadn't won any of them. So you had uh, Pavs, you know, who had memorably failed at a number of different majors in the past when she had chances to go all the way. And then you had six first-time major quarter finalists at the same tournament and that is an open era record so that's 53 years of tennis going back to the start of the open era at Roland Garros in 1968 so Krachikova's run it truly was unpredictable I mean it truly was not something that many people saw uh, there were a few people who certainly might have looked at her form heading into Roland Garros and would have looked at the unpredictability of women's tennis and said, hey, that's the horse I'm going to back. So I'm sure a few people uh, might have uh, felt that she could get hot and get on a run. But like that was, you could say that about any of dozens of players. Sakari was one of those and she finally made her first major semifinal. Pavs made her first major semifinal. And also Tamara Zidanshek uh, made her first major semifinal after never having gone past the second round of a major at, at previous appearances. So um, w did, could, could I say that no one saw this coming? No, I, I'm sure there were a handful of people who just you know threw a dart at the dartboard and said that Krachikova was the player they thought uh, would get hot, but it certainly wasn't a majority pick. You know, there was certainly was not like uh, 30, 40, 50% of the global tennis community of pundits and writers and reporters 
who were saying Kachikova, Kachikova before this uh, tournament began. It was probably maybe more like a cluster of five to eight percent, maybe. Um, so it certainly came out of nowhere. And now, in terms of assessing what this means, you know, the fact that she won the singles and doubles, it, it, it leads me to a specific point. A lot of people think that we should go to best of five for the women at majors. And, and I agree, but I think that uh, we should just do it for the major final. Some people think that we should do it starting in the quarters. So if rounds one through four, you do best of three, but then the quarters, semis, and final should all be best of five. So I think the fact that Krejcikova won the singles and the doubles, I think that means that we should just go with the final for best of five. That should be the only match because there's no match you have to play after that. And if we want to continue to have stories such as Krejcikova's, uh, where you know she's winning the singles and doubles, as you said, like Navratilova uh, back in the day in the in the 1980s. If we want to have more uh, top WTA players entering singles and doubles and being really great in both of them, uh, Iga Swiatek also, you know, she she nearly uh, won the doubles. Um, if we want top WTA players to continue to enter the, the doubles at majors, that means we should just do uh, best of five in the final. I mean, we should just do this gradually and in stages. I think that uh, doing quarter semis and final, that's biting off a little bit more than we can chew at this point. And, and let's emphasize at this point, because we can, I think, phase it in. We start with finals, then maybe we do that for a couple years and then maybe in 2024, 2025, maybe then we can be ready to do it quarters through finals uh, and, and see where we are. So I think that that's a particularly important point to note about the Krejcikova uh, victory in both singles and doubles at Roland Garros. No, I think indeed, if, you, if they have to go best of five, you're right. You know, it can only be for the finals. But uh, what a fortnight uh, she had and looks like She's just beginning and, you know, she also played, I think, a Dubai final earlier this year and played a very close match against Shuantek, I think, in Rome. So definitely this is no way a fluke. She does seem, you know, very much at ease. But then we also talked about her loop beforehand, how that's going to stand up on grass. So a lot of excitement around, you know, her grass fortnight that's coming up as well. So let's talk about paths. You know, like you briefly mentioned six quarters and a career that was supposed to be brilliant, but had a lot of peaks and valleys and more valleys of late. Uh, but she has a resurgent attitude, came in 50%, you know, winning, uh, winning her 50% 50, 50 matches she's played this year, nine and nine, uh, had a good run at Madrid. But again, uh, you did say like if, you know, the, the bracket erupts, she has the game to back up because she has the experience. But again, she's, uh, you know, she's no stranger to the last eight, but at the same time, she's also a stranger to consistency. So this was a big fortnight for her. Just uh, summarize it for someone who didn't watch it, didn't pay attention to what was going on in the Pavs world. And, you know, what does this mean for her late resurgence? And, you know, how, how bright is the future? Yeah, so if, if you are listening to this podcast and you didn't see too much of what Pavs did, I mean, the main thing is that she pulled through the kinds of matches which five, six, seven, eight years ago, she wouldn't have won. And she's... She said after her semifinal win over Zidanecek, you know, which clinched her berth in her first major final, she said the tennis has been there. You know, the tennis itself has not been the problem. You know, how you hit a ball, your technique, your ground strokes, 
Like that's always been there with Pavs. And then I think she's right. And I really admire the honesty about that. It's, it's about the fitness and it's about mental toughness. And so, you know, so she said the tennis is there. And so that's just to be clear here, tennis in that sense is just about how you hit the ball, how you shape your strokes. But of course, the sport of tennis is a complete test because it requires not just the technique, but it requires having the mental toughness to allow your technique to shine through in the difficult moments, in the stressful situations. That's what I call the inner game. It's, it's being able to do the same things through muscle memory with the same kind of relaxation and clarity uh, and fluidity at you know seven all in the, in the third as you do at one one in, in the first set. Because those are two very different situations. You know, your, your blood is not pumping as hard at 1-1 in the first set as it is 7-7 uh, uh, in the third. Um, that, that's just a basic reality. Your brain isn't nearly as uh, wild and, and chaotic a place at 1-1 in the first set as it is at 7-7 in the third. So Pavs came through Rabakina, Elena Rabakina, 9-7 in the third uh, in an extended length quarterfinal. That's the kind of match that she wouldn't ordinarily win. And, you know, she also came back from a set down against uh, Azarenka in, in the fourth round. Probably doesn't win that match four years ago. So this tournament was a testament to how Pavs was able to make strides in the inner game, mental toughness, and also physical fitness. And that last note about physical fitness contains a, a bit of bitter irony because she did seem to be a little bit physically limited uh, in the third set uh, against Krachikova in the final, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's a shame that she wasn't as healthy as she could have been than that, that last set, which in which she still fought bravely. It was three all, uh, but uh, Krachikova was clearly the fitter player able to cover more court at the very end. So, I mean, Pavs gave it her all. There's really no regrets. It's a, it's a point of frustration that she picked up that injury late in the second set. Um, but she really gave it everything she possibly could have. And so even though she doesn't walk away with a major title, she does walk away knowing that she went the distance. She was there on championship Saturday. She gave everything he could, she could, uh, you know, through the kitchen sink at every opponent she faced. So she wakes up now this week uh, after Rowan Garros, knowing that, Hey, I played a great, I played a legitimately great major tournament and you can, you can lose majors and still play great. I mean, just look at like Roger Federer, 2008 Wimbledon played a great tournament. Didn't win. It's because the other player was better in the final. So with paths, you know, there are a lot fewer regrets about her career. And while she's still uh, in this, in this position of, you know, having made such improvements to all the facets of how she uh, carries herself as a professional, you know, she turns 30 next month. So she still has majors in which, she can, you know, apply this newfound wisdom and maturity and make runs at majors. So I don't think that she's done. And I, th I would certainly like to think that this is going to really boost her confidence and put her in an even more relaxed frame of mind, such that when she gets another look at a good draw uh, and a real opportunity, and that when she gets into a tight quarterfinal, such as what she faced against Rabakina, that she's going to be able to pull through again. So I don't think we're done seen paths make the semis or better at major tournaments. And uh, before we wrap this up, 
you know, let's talk about some of the other players that, you know, made this fortnight fun. And Maria Sacre is one name that, that comes out. Coco Goff had a great tournament as well. Uh, and then, you know, there's Iga Schwantek. You know, she was the player to beat. And it quite didn't work out that way. So how would you categorize, you know, these three names, you know, when you look back at 20, you know, the 2021 edition of Roland Garros? Well, you know, Sakari, it's, it's a lot like her country, her, her fellow countryman, uh, Sitsipas, that she had not been there before. You know, serving serving for your first major final, she had not been there before against Kachikova. So much as Sitsipas is going to learn from what he went through in the final against Djokovic, uh, Sakari uh, is going to learn from what she went through against Kachikova in that semifinal. Sure, her, she's going to be better for it. Uh, you just, you know, you just can't prepare for the first time you go through a uniquely stressful tennis experience. So not handling it well is not a verdict on the player. It's really how you handle it the next time or the time after that. So it's a really great re- result for her, despite the fact that she had match point, couldn't convert it, lost to Krachikova. It's still a great result. It's a big forward step for her career. So I'm really excited to see what's coming up next for Sakari. And then Sviantec, you know, it was just a, it was a, it was a big ask. One thing we have to mention, and this, you know, this ties into uh, the conversation we had earlier about Kachikova doing the heavy lifting of singles and doubles. Sviantec played a very long match midway through uh, the tournament. Uh, she and Maddox Sands beat uh, Shea Suwei and uh, Mertens in a really long battle. And that might've taken out a little bit of her uh, before that quarterfinal against Sakari. So, you know, Sviantec was ambitious in her uh, scheduling here. Maybe she won't play doubles uh, next year at Roland Garros or maybe at the U.S. Open uh, so that she can see uh, what she's able to do if she just focuses on singles. It'll be interesting to see uh, how she handles that workload. Well said. And then, you know, we are all in the grass season. And I think this was a great French Open. You know, Djokovic has won his 19th major and has the second set of career, you know, Grand Slam. And Krachikova, you know, made her debut, tasted, you know, opened her account. And let's see, you know, how these players and their rivals fare in the weeks coming up because Tennis One Action will be there uh, for the podcasting, for the writing, and for the daily shows. For the Absolutely. Next and Saka, before we, before we wrap up, I have to ask a question to you. You know, you interviewed Stefano Tsitsipas before he rose to stardom. And, you know, some people might know this story, but others might not, especially people who have listened to the Tennis with an Accent podcast in recent years, you know, who just might have found out about our podcast in the past 12 to 18 months. They might not know about this story back in 2017. So let's share that for, for our listeners so they can enjoy uh, the, the, this story that you have about Sitsipas. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned it here, but maybe some of the listeners know. Uh, I was pointed to Sitsipas uh, on Twitter, and uh, he wasn't, you know, the clear cut, the next gen, you know, youngster, the junior. And, uh, and, I, and I was a rookie myself, you know, the podcasting bug was on full flow. I was just using ways to find emails and uh, putting messages on, you know, <laughs> Facebook Messenger, by the way, that's how I got Mark Woodford, you know, like, it was desperate, you know, like midlife crisis, just texting people you don't know, and, you know, nobody would reply. And then I looked at Sitsipas fan page, and he had a Yahoo email address, you know, which you can reach out to him. 
And I said, why not? Let me try this guy. I, I had no idea, you know. I knew who he was, but I don't know if he will speak in English. I was just trying left and right. And then before I was going to bed at midnight, I was checking my work email. Then I saw Sitsipa's reply from the Yahoo email. He said, yeah, I've never done a podcast. And how does that work? And of course, we started, you know, emailing back and forth. And he said, yeah, we can do this. Uh, and I explained to him it will be on Skype. He said, I don't even know what he said. It's like so long ago. Then all of a sudden, he stopped emailing me. And then he said, why don't you talk to my agent? And I said, okay, there goes my chance because I didn't have much of a listening base. I have only talked to Peter Coda by then, who, you know, who's in tennis exile. So, you know, that didn't really bode well for me. So I was asked to call Sitsipas' agent in London. So I called him one morning and the guy asked me same things. Uh, and I said, look, you know, my audience is growing organically, but I'm not a big name, but I'll do justice to your to your player and I'll ask him good questions. And he said, let me ask Stefano's dad because, you know, it's his career I'm managing and blah, blah. I said, okay, there goes a the chance. And, you know, I didn't lie. You know, I, I had a very modest listening base. I told them by numbers. I said, I promote this on Twitter. And I said, okay, case closed. I'm not going to hear back from them. And then this topic, you know, didn't have any traction and I didn't want to hassle, you know, his agent. So I thought this is done. And all of a sudden, Sitsipas texted me one day. Uh, he said, I'm back in Greece. If you want to do a podcast, I'm free in the next four hours or something. And I was at work. I said, holy shit. I mean, this is okay. I said the word, but I said, okay, this is happening. So I said, how do I do this? So I called my wife and she said, oh, you can use my international calling card. And I used a calling card, worked the combination for my phone recorder, had few test calls. Then I emailed Sitsipas. So during my lunchtime, I go in my car. Yeah, this is all happening in a car, by the way. So I called Sitsipas. And then, you know, it was... <laughs> and then, then we recorded a 12-minute podcast. You know, it was clearly, you know, he was coming along. He could speak English, but, you know, he was not the guy he is right now. You know, he's any podcaster, interviewer's dream because he gives you so many quotes. He opens up. He's matured into something of an international superstar. And I said, okay, wow, 12 minutes, thank you very much. He even gave me a line, like, after the show, you are like, you know, the tennis podcast, you know, this is Stefano Sitsipas or something. So I'm happy. Next day, I get his uh, agent emailing me. <laughs> he said, okay, I've talked to his dad. You can call Stefanos. And I said, okay, so this happened without the blessing of the agent. So I called the agent. I said, look, I didn't mean to go behind your back. I didn't hear back from you. And then Stefanos reached out to me and I thought you guys were on the same page. And he said, don't worry. And that time the guy said, he knows I have talked to Corda. He said, I'm also managing Corda's kids, you know, who plays golf and tennis. And he, now you have two big account, you know, two big podcasts and he wished me good luck. And uh, that still remains one of the most famous podcasts. I mean, I was a rookie. Stefanos was a rookie, of course. He's a, he's a superstar now. And I believe my podcasting still probably have gotten 10, 20% better. But that was that was a crazy story. Every time I look back at it, it's just amazing how that that whole thing shaped. And it's a, it's a funny story whenever I tell people. But yeah, I don't know how many people will enjoy listening how the podcast came together. And he was good enough. He 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 he, he stayed in touch with me well, for at least the next year or so. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I have to ask a follow-up. What what do you see in, in terms of changes and elements of evolution in, in Sitsipas's personality and how he carries himself, how he goes about his business? Just what, what's it been like to observe Sitsipas, as I'm sure you have done uh, in these four years since that, that podcast uh, in 2017? I mean, honestly, Matt, it's more like a fan. I mean, when we spoke on the phone, he was, you know, done playing. He was telling me he was playing video games at home. He was getting bored. He had come home. 
I think, between ITF uh, <laughs> events. And, you know, that, that was a kid, you know, who wanted to explore. And, you know, that's how most people are. And, you know, and I don't blame him. The more, the more he became a marquee name in 2018, his demands got bigger. And, you know, he was seen as the next-gen player who could probably challenge the big three and also replace Zverev as the next guy. And he has done that. But as a fan watching tennis, you know, yeah, he's definitely, you know, improved. And, and, the, and the best part about him is, which most people have written about him, he takes every loss so personal. You know, he, he's a guy who's, who's wearing his emotional sleeves. He wants to be a tennis player, nothing else. Absolutely the best tennis player he can be. And that's the evolution, you know, I see every time he, he loses a match, beat the Roland Garros semis to Djokovic last year, the prior year, the loss to Wawrinka. You know, he puts out these tweets, his message on Instagram, like, you know, pretty much it's kind of the end of the world kind of, you know, that, that's how sad he is. And, he, and he's grown into a fine, fine tennis player on everyone's watch. And yeah, I, I, and then again, you know, like uh, after the podcast a year later when he lost to uh, Dennis Shapovalov in Australia, Shapovalov manhandled him. And that time I was saying, you know what, I interviewed this guy and, you know, like he's the biggest name probably, biggest young name that has come on my podcast. But I, I'll be honest, I was not... I was not too bullish that he's going to become the force that he has become. So as much as credit I would like to take to catch him young when he was a, you know, upcoming junior, I mean, I had my doubts on his rise. And, you know, I'll be first one to admit, I didn't see this kind of potential. I thought he'll be a top 10 player. But uh, pretty soon, you know, like after the podcast, everybody started talking about future world number one. And, you know, that's where we are right now. He, he has a shot at that in the next year or so. It's a great story. Sakib, uh, tell our listeners what we have coming up for Wimbledon here at uh, Tennis with an Accent. Yeah, I think uh, me and Matt tried Twitter spaces. Most of you could join, and that's more like the breaking, you know, the reaction mode of uh, our coverage. We'll still do the podcasting on a weekly basis, and Matt and team, everyone else, you know, Jane and Andrew, if Murd is back, and Sharda, everybody will be writing articles. Uh, but with the Twitter space, I think we, we promise to do a 30-minute space every day of the fortnight. And then we'll also do two live uh, draw shows where we'll analyze both women and men's draw. So that just adds up as a supplement to, you know, the tennis with an accent coverage. You know, due to the pandemic, we, you know, we were, the site wasn't active, but we are back in full force. And I think that's the whole idea uh, to do these added ways of coverage to bring more content for, for the listeners here and for the readers. And th- that's the whole plan. And I think the first fortnight was a reasonable success. There were some fam- familiar faces and the Djokovic Nadal day, I think had the biggest uh, turnaround for a live show. I think we had 67 people. Yes, I do count them, you know, I'm, I'm a geek at numbers. Uh, that, that, that's the plan. And we plan to do this even for the US Open. And then we'll see, you know, what kind of uh, coverage uh, we are creating and what kind of response we are getting in back, the feedback we're getting back because, you know, tennis in action, what kind of missing due, due to the pandemic, but we are now back in uh, full swing of things. Zach, so I want to thank you for not just hosting this podcast, but for creating that Twitter spaces technology and all the live shows. And, uh, you know, if, if you missed those live shows uh, during the French Open, we're going to be doing them again at Wimbledon. So that is something that you can just look at uh, and look for. Uh, and they're the, the links to those live shows, they're posted, you know, pretty much on a, you know, we, we announced the midway through a day's play, like we'll say, Oh, we're going to do this live show in an hour, or maybe we're going to do it at like, you know, um, 
like eight o'clock London time, something like that. So just you just want to watch for either my tweets or also tweets from the accent underscore tennis Twitter account. And that's where the links to the Twitter spaces uh, are going to be sent out. So uh, Wimbledon draw is, is roughly a week. I mean, it's going to be late in the last full week of June. So we're not going to do these uh, live spaces right when the draw is being revealed, but we're probably just going to have a live show on the Friday before Wimbledon uh, for the women's draw and then a live show on the Saturday before Wimbledon starts. Uh, that would be June 26th uh, for the men. So you just want to be uh, on the lookout for our draw preview live Twitter spaces shows Friday, June 25th for the women, Saturday, June 26th for the men here at Tennis with an Accent. We really appreciate everyone who uh, listens to us and supports us. And uh, we really look forward to bringing home the championships to you. And this, this time we promise no website uh, interruptions. Uh, that was a point of frustration, but we got that fixed. And if you click on links, uh, you're not gonna get any site insecure notices. We have that little technical bug. Sakab expertly fixed that, got that thing taken care of. So it's full steam ahead for Wimbledon here at Tennis with an Accent. We really thank you for joining us in this podcast. We thank you for your support of TWAA.